Hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ from Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 through 42. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Father, I thank you for this scripture, and I pray that as we dig into it, that our hearts would be encouraged, that each one here, Father, would uh, feel a connection with the body of Christ around the world, and uh, especially uh, appreciation of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as has already been mentioned a couple of times, this is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And because this church is already so involved in giving to missions and praying and writing letters and in other ways um, uh, helping out the persecuted, uh, I didn't want to make this simply a call to get involved. I think uh, this church is uh, plenty involved, doing a great job on that. And I didn't want to pull at your heartstrings to gain more sympathy. I think there is uh, plenty of... uh, uh, burden for the, the, the suffering both here in America and elsewhere as well. Nor did I want this to be a negative or a discouraging sermon, so I thought what I would do is explain the positive blessings that this congregation is already reaping and will continue to reap as you labor on behalf of the persecuted church. Basically, I want you to know your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Okay, uh, God delights to bless his people. Verse 42 says, he shall by no means lose his reward. By no means. And this is a passage that's been of tremendous encouragement to Kathy and me. Even though nobody's got the same kind of gifts and abilities and uh, different ministries that are out there, every one of us God has orchestrated uh, the the whole kingdom in a way that every one of us can excel in uh, rewards. For example, I can no longer be out on the mission field because of my health issues, but by supporting missionaries uh, out there, I can share in their reward. Neither Kathy nor I have, thankfully, um, gotten the martyr's crown, Uh, But, you know, if you study the rewards that the Bible promises to those who become martyrs for him, you might covet that crown. I know that I do. Uh, Having read a a lot of what the Scripture says about the rewards that they will receive, I cannot think of a better uh, uh, gift that the Lord could uh, bestow upon me than to be a martyr. But it's very unlikely that Kathy or I are ever going to do that. But by ministering to other people who have become martyrs in other countries, we in some way, according to this passage, will be able to share in their reward. And so this passage has given us great enthusiasm in our giving to missions and our private charity. And so what I want to do today is I want to take that concept that has driven us in other areas and move it into the area of ministering to the persecuted. And we're going to start with verse 40. It says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So the first motivation that can excite us to minister is the knowledge 
that when you minister to me or when I minister to you or when you minister to each other, you're actually ministering to Christ who was united uh, to each one of us. This is not just theory. This is reality. When you minister to a suffering Christian in Myanmar, uh, Christ indicates you are ministering to him. He says to that believer in Myanmar, he who receives you receives me. And that is something that is, uh, 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 needs to get into the depths of our being, our consciousness. And Jesus says that because of his union with the Father, when uh, we minister to that person, we're ministering to Christ, but it, we're also ministering to the Father. We're receiving the Father. Uh, and if you begin to meditate for a period of time on the implications of that statement, it will motivate you to minister to people like Jack Phillips, one of the most persecuted bakers uh, in America, even though there's a lot of other people like him. You're very familiar with uh, Jack um, <clears throat> uh, Phillips. Or a person like uh, uh, Richard and Betty Gortz, who had their florist shop shut down just from Grimes, Iowa. How many here have even heard about that? off the radar. Okay, a couple people have heard. Uh, this is a person where uh, they're coming, they, they are coming after everybody, the homosexual uh, community. And so they target this florist shop and they say, hey, we want to perform, we want to rent your florist shop to perform a wedding. And this was a Mennonite couple. And she said, well, I, I don't think we can use our florist shop for a homosexual wedding. And so they got sued, and the fines were so onerous, they just had to shut down their shop. Okay, there's these kinds of things that are happening. So don't think that the persecuted are only in other countries. Uh, we have plenty right here in America. And we can become familiar with them by reading the bulletins sent out by Heritage Defense and Alliance Defending Freedom. And uh, what are some of the other ones? The Rutherford Institute. There's a number of good legal organizations out there that are alerting people to this. Anyway, I first became gripped with this concept when I was 22 years old, uh, reading a sermon on Matthew 25 by the Puritan John Flavel, and he explained the passage much, much better than I'm going to be able to experience, uh, explain it, but I want to try, and I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25 and look at how closely Christ identifies with his people. Now, these people didn't actually see Jesus physically. In fact, they are mystified with Jesus' words because when they're ministering to uh, these people in prison, it's just common Christians that they're feeding, they're clothing, they're giving food to. And yet, look at verse 35. This is Matthew 25, verse 35. Christ says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. In some way unknown to us, Christ's union with us is so real that he can say without any deceit that when these people were hungry, he was hungry in some way. Christ can't lie. He can't exaggerate. He cannot slant the truth. So we really need to take the statement seriously. Now, we don't have to understand how this can happen uh, to appreciate uh, the fact that we can minister to Jesus just as tangibly as Mary, Martha, and Lazarus did when uh, they were giving hospitality to Jesus. Um, I think every one of us, if we lived in the first century, we would love to be able to extend hospitality to Jesus. Well, he says you actually can. When you're ministering to each other uh, within this congregation, you are ministering to him. <clears throat> 
So just think of the person, the least likely person that you would want to minister to uh, within this congregation and um, realize that if you serve him or her, you're serving Jesus. Now, some people are skeptical right out of the chute, and they say that's impossible for Jesus to be hungry because he's glorified. He's got a perfect body in heaven. There is no way that he could be hungry. Uh, how, how can this be? But John Flavel said that our mystical union with Christ is so real that these words are not mere figures. In some way, he experiences or identifies or in some way suffers with our hunger. I don't know exactly how, but he does. He goes on to say, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. And in the following verses, he just reverses that. And he says that when you neglect an individual who has need, and you know you could meet that need, you're neglecting Christ. Uh, so, and before I go on, let me correct a gross misuse of this verse. So you've probably heard Mother Teresa being quoted and uh, quoting this verse as if it applies to everybody in the whole wide world. It does not. In fact, it's a blasphemous use of that word. Uh, she treats Christ as being in every human being. That is not true. This is talking about, now it does say, uh, other scriptures say that we are to love our enemies right? And we're to do good to those who despitefully use us, but it's for other reasons than this. This is something very specific. It's service to believers. He says, one of the least of these, my brethren. And so the more you practice thinking that you are talking to Christ when you talk to another believer, the more your speech will change. The more you treat your kids as indwelt by Christ when you do the dishes and you pick up after them, the better your attitudes are going to be to the kids. Now, it doesn't mean you won't correct your kids because the Jesus who indwells your children wants you to correct them when they are doing that which is wrong. And so, yes, you will do that, but it does mean you'll have a Christ-centered focus. Now, this is an incredibly life-transforming thought. When I give so much as a cup of cold water to you in hospitality, I'm doing it to Christ because of his union with you. Well, this makes hospitality thrilling. It really does. Uh, when I hurt you, I'm hurting Christ. When I neglect you passively, I'm neglecting Christ passively. When Saul persecuted Christians, what did Jesus say to those uh, to, to Saul. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, he felt persecuted. When you go through a rough day, it just realize Christ is in that rough day with you. The people who are hurting you are hurting Christ. And so the, for the persecuted, this could be a very encouraging uh, principle. They're not persecuted alone. Colossians 1.24 says that they are filling up the sufferings of Christ. Now that is incredible when you think about it because it implies that Christ continues to suffer right now when he is heaven. Now that verse is also misinterpreted, this time by the Roman Catholics, uh, who say that that verse proves that the saints contribute to, to redemption. Their sufferings 
add to Christ's suffering. His sufferings weren't enough for redemption and to achieve your salvation, and so there's a treasury of merits. No, that says nothing whatsoever to do about that. That is blasphemous. What Paul is saying is that Christ is ordained to continue to suffer the sufferings of the church until the end of history. Every one of those sufferings is preordained, which means you don't suffer by accident. We're gradually filling up the sufferings that Christ was ordained to suffer. Now, is this simply empathy? We don't know. There's a certain mystery about this. But Paul was indicating that Jesus was in some way continuing to suffer for every lash that Paul received from Roman authorities. The statement that brought Paul conviction and conversion, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, now brings him comfort now that he's saved. So back to our passage in Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> Matthew 10 not only indicates that we are to be received by others, but also we are to receive all whom Christ receives, a prophet, a righteous man, a toddler. How do we treat the brethren? How do we treat toddlers? In verse 42 he says, and whoever gives one of these little ones. So he must have had young ones that uh, were all around him, why he taught. And by the way, this is one of many passages that indicates they didn't dismiss the children to children's church. No, the children were right there in the congregation. He had a uh, family-integrated church. But notice what he says here. Whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Because of the covenantal union that the child has with a parent, and because of the covenantal union that the parent has with Christ, <clears throat> it indicates your actions to this child of the believing parents unites your action to Christ in some way. Christ said it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and for you to be drowned, uh, thrown into the, the sea, than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And there are many other implications of our union with Christ. Think of the incredible dignity that this gives to common chores such as setting up the tables and pouring water. <clears throat> when it's your turn to set up the tables over here, do it for Jesus. You know, when you pour water for your neighbor at the dinner table, do it for Jesus. Now what gives these actions greatness is not the water, it's the significance of the Christian being united to Christ. Uh, when you make beds and wash floors, when you change diapers and you clean up spilled milk, you need to realize very consciously you're doing this for Jesus. Some people think it's merely covenantal or legal language. That may be involved, but Flavel thinks there's much more to this. It's because of our mystical union uh, with Christ. So let's apply this first point to the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. If you are not motivated to do anything, write letters or do anything for persecuted Christians out of guilt or love or duty, maybe you might be motivated to do it when you realize that ministering to them is ministering to Christ who is right now in that prison with them. Right now is hungry. Right now is feeling sympathetically or some other way he is feeling their persecution. Now the second motivation that's listed in your outline is that we will be rewarded for our actions. The Puritan writer Thomas Manton said, there is a dispute whether we may look to the reward, and by that he meant whether we can be motivated by rewards or not. Uh, and then he goes on to say, I say not only we may, but we must. 
but as he notes, there is controversy on this subject of rewards. There are some uh, Reformed people who don't believe in rewards. There's others who do believe in it. Um, my uh, dad, at an early age, preached on rewards. It was something that gripped me uh, uh, from uh, a long time back. So I definitely take a stand on this, but there are good people who don't believe this. But I'm going to try to convince you uh, of this principle of rewards this morning demonstrating that every believer can lay up treasures in heaven no matter what his gifting or calling may be. Verse 41 speaks of a prophet's reward and a righteous man's reward. Verse 42 speaks of a disciple's reward. And then the last phrase says, I say to you that he shall by no means lose his reward. For thousands of years, Christians have been motivated by the rewards that God gives. Now, some people say there is no more reward that we receive than that we get to go to heaven. Uh, they claim anything else is contrary to grace, there needs to be an equality of grace. But from my perspective, and if you disagree, hopefully you're not insulted by this, but from my perspective, that is injecting a socialistic concept in there. There is no socialism of grace since God created every person with different bodies, different intellectual abilities, monetary status, social gifts, and he very explicitly says that he distributes a different measure of grace to each one by way of gifts. Okay, so it's explicit, a different measure of grace. Why does there have to be a leveling of distinctions in terms of reward? If the only reward is heaven, then everyone comes out the same no matter what his actions on earth, and it is just as demotivating as socialism was in the former Soviet Union. And I want to give several reasons why our actions in time will have a profound effect upon what rewards we'll receive in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to be starting out eternity uh, with a pool that we are laying up right now. It's sort of like an investment account that we keep putting into that investment account. As Matthew Henry said, our uh, vessels will all be full, but they will have a different capacity based on what we do down here. In other words, we're going to be joyful in heaven no matter what, but many people will have a massive head start. So here's some of my reasons why I believe there are, you have to hold to this idea of rewards. First of all, it's the word reward. Look it up in any Greek dictionary that you want, and I don't think you can get away from this concept, that the meaning of this term is you get something for what you have done. It's either translated as wages or reward, okay? <clears throat> Heaven is not a reward, or we would have a works righteousness. We, we are not saved by works, but we are rewarded by works. This promise is made to people who are already heaven-bound, they are already saved, they're already secure, it's something different than heaven. Second reason is that verse 42 connects specific actions with the reward, and this verse makes very clear that every action, no matter how insignificant, can receive a reward. Now, if heaven was a reward, then it would be falling again into the error of salvation by works. It's not our works that gains heaven. Paul said we are saved by works, uh, by faith, I'm sorry, <laughs> we are saved by faith apart from works, right? Apart from works. But it's different for rewards. Rewards are given for actions of people who are already saved. Third, Christ is not leveling all rewards into one indistinguishable reward where everybody has exactly the same reward. He clearly distinguishes different kinds of rewards. 
He speaks of a prophet's reward, a righteous man's reward, a disciple's reward. And if you look at some of the other scriptures, which we won't take time for, you're going to see different levels of glory, different levels of reward. And then fourth, going to the broader context of the whole Bible, the word reward occurs more than 100 times in the Bible, and consistently it is used as an incentive to labor and sacrifice because our actions make a difference. Now, in a socialistic country like the former Soviet Union or China, uh, people are not very motivated to excellence in work because it really doesn't matter. They get the same reward no matter what uh, they put into it. I was talking to a salesperson for, I won't name the company, but um, a major earth-moving equipment company, and he was doing most of his sales in China. He told me he was astounded that the same equipment that lasted 20 or more years here in America lasted five years or less in China. And he says, because they just didn't maintain the equipment. All they would have to do is maintain it, but nobody was motivated to take care of stuff because it didn't belong to them, right? And so if you really grasp this principle that we don't live in a socialistic worldview, um, uh, this word reward occurs more than a hundred times in the Bible. Consistently it's used as an incentive to labor and sacrifice because our actions make a difference. Okay, Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul seeks to motivate the Corinthians with precisely this point. And uh, we're going to look at verses 8 and 11 through 15. Verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. So the reward is individualized. It corresponds to the labor done. In other words, there are distinctions of reward. This is not socialism where everybody gets rewarded exactly the same, no matter whether they sacrificed a normal sleigh or they just skated through life. Salvation is the same. That's where we're all one. But the reward is not the same because each one receives his own reward according to his labor. It's individualized. Now take a look at verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the salvation deals with our, the foundation deals with our salvation in Christ. And it's the same for everyone, uh, as verse 15 makes uh, clear. No one can lay the foundation except for Christ. That's why salvation is equal. We didn't contribute a thing. We're all equally deserving of hell, and because of the merits of Christ, we're all equally deserving of heaven. There are no distinctions in terms of how we get into heaven, but the works wrought by God's grace flow out of salvation, and they can have a very significant part to play in that. And so he speaks of building on the foundation. That is something that we do. Once we're saved, our actions are very significant. So take a look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. Notice that again. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In other words, he's going to be saved. He's going to get into heaven, but he won't have what others have. He won't be bringing anything from this life into heaven, whereas others will. And so again, rewards are distinguished from heaven. 
Our actions after we are saved play a very significant role in our rewards. And this is why John warns us to be careful that we not lose our reward. He's not talking about losing heaven or losing salvation. 2 John 8 tells us that we may receive, and he tells us exactly how, we may receive a full reward. So back to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 42 Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. The action of the giving of a cup of cold water was something that gained a reward. The action of receiving a prophet, receiving a righteous man, it's noticed by God. This means that every email that you send on behalf of a righteous cause, every drudgerous job that you do for the glory of God, maybe the advancement of a political uh, righteous cause, that is something noticed uh, by God. And it has the potential of a reward attached to it, if we do it by faith and to his glory. This means that day by day and hour by hour, we're either laying up spiritual money or we're wasting spiritual money. Now, it's not literal money. I'm just using money as a metaphor, comparing it uh, to that. But it's sort of, it's a kind of investment. This is a capitalistic venture in a spiritual sense, right? Now, granted, the spiritual gold, silver, and jewels that we use all come from God's grace. So it's like a father who has given an inheritance to his kids, and he says, now go invest it. We've gotten it by grace. We, didn't, we just inherited it, but we must invest what God has given to us. So point two is the capitalistic point. God says that even in a grace system, your efforts make a difference. And there will be some Christians who arrive in heaven absolutely amazed at the compounded growth of their own efforts over time, and they'll start out miles ahead of others in their eternal dominion. Others will be ashamed that they have nothing to start their eternity of dominion with. They're going to be saved, yes, and that'll be wonderful, that'll be glory. And it's true that Scripture says after Judgment Day, God will wipe away all tears, but there will be tears, tears of regret that we had not done what we should have done. Uh, scripture is clear, some will rule over ten cities, some over one city, some will not rule uh, over anything. Uh, some will get in by the skin of their teeth, is the way it's an expression in the King James Version. I, I, I like that expression. 1 John 2.28 warns us, And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now some people act as if it's impossible to be ashamed before Christ at the second uh, coming. But this says, no, there's the possibility of being ashamed on that day. God makes distinctions. There are going to be a lot of distinctions made on Judgment Day. Now apply this to how we help the persecuted, and I think you will see why it is a great motivator. Working with the persecuted is risky, but it is greatly honored by Christ in Matthew 25 and in other passages. For example, I think that the lawyers that are defending Aaron and Melissa Klein, uh, who, who you may remember uh, were fined uh, by an Oregon court $135,000 for not baking a specialized decorated cake for a homosexual couple. Um, those lawyers have risked a lot, they've expended a lot to defend them, and I think they're going to receive tremendous reward from the Lord for doing this, but so will the common ordinary person who's just written letters of encouragement or maybe has contributed uh, to that cause uh, with ADF. 
Helping the persecuted is one of the best investments you can make with your time, with your talents, and your money. There is so much persecution worldwide that it can be overwhelming. God doesn't tell you you have to help everybody. He's just going to providentially make opportunities available to you, but you can help some. Let's move on. If the previous two points were motivating, Roman numeral three adds encouragement after encouragement. This point says that ministering to the persecuted shares in their rewards. And this is not a socialism of grace either. It recognizes difference, but each one is contributing something. But it also points out that everyone can have a part in helping in the ministry. For example, you might not have the gift of evangelism, but if you open up your house to invite your neighbors and you invite an evangelist, you will share in that evangelist's reward. Why? Because you're sharing in his ministry. You're helping him with his ministry. He has invested in it. It's uh, not socialism, it's capitalism. Now, in your outline, I make some clarifications. First, it needs to be demonstrated that there really are special rewards for the persecuted, and that this passage even refers to such persecuted uh, Christians. It's true. In, in 40 through 42, he doesn't mention the word persecuted, but the context clearly does. This can't be interpreted outside of that context. Um, and so take a look at some of the verses. We'll start with verse 14 says, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that city, house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than that for that city. So how that city mistreated these messengers is taken very seriously by Jesus. Verse 16, he says he's sending them out as sheep among wolves. Uh, he warns them they're going to be flogged in synagogues. Verse 17, they're going to be brought before governors. Verse 18, um, they'll be turned in by relatives, verse 21. They'll be hated, verse 22. But in verse 28, Jesus tells them not to fear those who kill the body. Um, verse 34 and following speak of the turmoil that the gospel brings to social relationships. Verse 39 speaks of losing your life. So the context is very clear. He's talking about the persecuted, and it's in that context of verses 41 through 42 speaks of sharing in their rewards. There are indeed special rewards that the persecuted receive. These prophets, righteous men, disciples that the chapter had earlier been talking about will be rewarded. Matthew 5, 11 through 12 says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. I won't say more about that. I'm just going to assume you buy into the concept that the, 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 the persecuted do get a special reward, and martyrs probably get one of the greatest. What this passage says is we can share in the rewards that the persecuted person will have. Verse 41 says, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. This, this is not just his own reward. This is receiving someone else's reward. Well, by implication, this means when we help a persecuted woman in the name of a, that woman, uh, we're going to participate in some way in her special reward. By helping her, we're investing in her investment vehicle, so to speak. So backing up, point one says, anytime we serve Jesus, he's investing our funds. 
Point two says our labors are an investment themselves. Point three says the funds we invest into the lives of others, other people, will grow with the same potential those other people's investments grow. So just to use an analogy, if you'd had the foresight, which most of us didn't, to invest in Warren Buffett right from the beginning and do everything that he invested in, you invest in, you would have done all right uh, because you're riding right on his, his uh, profits. Um, so you can think of these three points as not putting all your eggs in one basket, or maybe another way of looking at it is securing your investments in three different ways. But this is a phenomenal promise. What we do for other believers shares in their reward. So you can see why some people never stop giving. I know some people, it's almost they're addicted to giving because they see what they're investing in. Now, point C indicates benefiting from our investments is not automatic. This is important. We can lose on our investments. Now, we already read about that in 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 42 ends with the words, shall by no means lose his reward. So it is a promise, and even though it's a guarantee, it's a guarantee in the context of the conditions he's laid down earlier uh, in, the, in the chapter. Just as physical investments can be lost in a stock market, spiritual investments can be lost in the kingdom. And we want to ensure we have this guarantee that we will by no means lose our reward. And it's only as we implement the cautions in this chapter that he assures us we won't lose our reward. And I'll just quickly go through uh, some examples. Verse 39 says, if I am completely preoccupied with loving my life and saving my life, I'll lose my life and I'll lose the things that I invested. Why? Because God's in the idol-destroying business. Our families can be idols. Verse 37 says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So again, we can't take these verses out of context. Verses 32 through 33 indicate we can't be ashamed of Jesus. All must be done to God's glory and in Christ's name by his grace. Colossians 2.18 says, let no one cheat you of your reward. So it's a spiritual stock market, so to speak, and you can be cheated out of the dividends if you're not careful. 2 John 7 warns about deceivers who can cheat us spiritually. And then it says in verse 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Uh, many Christians act as if a full reward is just automatic, but it is not. Paul, John, Jesus all say we have to be careful. Now one last thing to notice about sharing the rewards of others we share in their rewards when we have personal ministry involvement. So notice the distinction in these verses. Verse 41 says, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet. Later it says, ministry done in the name of a righteous man. Verse 42 speaks of ministry in the name of a disciple. What does it mean to do something in the name of another person? It could mean other things, but it means at least some personal involvement uh, in their ministry. This is not a... Dear Jesus, help all of the orphans in the world, Jesus' name, amen, kind of a prayer. No, this is a prayer that is offering up the names of people specifically and writing perhaps to them, uh, uh, to, to these names and supporting and visiting them. How do we do that when we're so far removed from the persecuted? What are some practical ways we could do this? Well, Voice of the Martyrs often has cards that can be sent to authorities to free jailed uh, pastors or Christians with their names, sometimes even their pictures written on that. That is 
ministering to a specific name. It's a personal involvement. Uh, Certainly praying for the persecuted by name counts. But notice the sequence of verse 40. Receiving an apostle was receiving Christ who sent them. Receiving Christ is receiving the Father who sent Jesus. Well, using that logic, we can conclude that when we receive an organization that is ministering to the poor face-to-face, we are linked to those faces. So purchasing specific items for the persecuted through Frontline Fellowship, Voice of the Martyrs, is doing that. Contacting the president and congressmen about interceding on behalf of specific persecuted people is another way. You might say, well, it's useless doing it with our president. I don't think anything is useless. Our God is a God of impossibilities, right? So I I think we should at least try. I always encourage people, try to stay up to date on what is happening in America and other countries on the persecuted. And you could do this by subscribing to some of these magazines, emails, reading online. Many ways in which we can receive the persecuted. Fourth motivation in these verses is knowing that every action we make on earth can have an eternal significance. Who would have thought that giving a cup of cold water would by no means lose its reward? In terms of the flow of history, giving a cup of cold water seems so insignificant, but it is not. It is not. And let me emphasize, this is more than just rewards. We're talking about the human desire for significance. When you've done something you know is super significant, many times that's all the reward you feel like like you need. I mean, it it feels good. We want our labors to count for something. A thousand years from now, wouldn't it be great if the Lord shows us, okay, here's the trail of all of the things that your influences have had. Your life counted for something. Okay, It won't be a fact that you've got a great house but how you used your house to minister to your children and other people. That's what makes it significant. It's not the fact you got a great car, but are you using your car to God's glory? Too often we don't think about the eternal significance of our actions until we're dying and it's too late. We need to start thinking about them now. Make sure your life is devoted to things that count. Use your job. It's a secular job, but use it as a stewardship trust. Change diapers for Christ. Do all for eternity. Next time you pass a plate of food to somebody in your family or you fill the baby's mouth with a bottle of milk, just offer up a little prayer. Lord, I'm doing this for you. I love you. This is, I'm serving you by serving this baby. Okay? It's that kind of thinking that will begin to make everything have an eternal significance. Okay, the last motivator in these verses, it's just implied, so I'm not going to spend much time on it, If we are guaranteed rewards and eternal significance to what we do, it implies that we're on the winning side, right? Because it's the winning general who distributes, you know, rewards. It's not the losing general. He's the one that gets plundered, right? And so implied in these verses is the guarantee that Christ will win in history and in eternity. And Paul ends his glorious chapter of victory in 1 Corinthians 15 saying this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We're on the winning side. That's a very important motivator. No one is enthusiastic in sacrificing and laying down his life for a cause unless he believes that cause is significant or they're going to win or maybe a combination of those two. We're part of a glorious army, and any sacrifices we make will be worthwhile. We're on the winning side. Amen? 
If you will meditate upon and continually remind yourself of those five positive motivators, I think it'll give you joy and enthusiasm in your ministry. So after you've had dinner here, I'd like you to do three things. Spend some time in prayer for the persecuted church, and Michael Elliott's pulled together some prayer resources to enable you to do that. Second, strategize on at least, and maybe you'll have to spend some time thinking the rest of the week, but strategize on at least one specific way that you can be involved in the life of at least one persecuted Christian. It could be a person in America, like some of the people I've mentioned. It could be a person in other countries. But um, now, in the past, I was able to have face-to-face -face, uh, ministry in India and China with uh, persecuted Christians. Can't do that anymore. But uh, I can send letters. I can give a gift. I can raise awareness. I can encourage politicians to do the right thing. So think of one way you can be involved that might be just sending an encouraging note. Third, make a plan for sharing in someone else's ministry, not just one individual persecuted person, but in a ministry to the persecuted, either here in America or elsewhere. It could be a simple gift. It could be something more complicated. And as you do so, consciously do it for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the challenge of these verses, but we also thank you for the encouragement of that. You are so generous. Uh, you are the God of all comfort, and you comfort the afflicted, but you are also the God who enables us to rejoice when we are persecuted, to count it all joy, knowing that our reward in heaven will be great. Help us, Father, to not have our vision so narrowed by the difficulties that we face that we miss out on the eternal significance of absolutely everything that we do. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, may we do it all to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.